Welcome to Decoding Healthcare Research, a podcast by Agora Project. Join us as we delve into the behind-the-scenes world of groundbreaking research and the dynamic healthcare industry, interviewing top paper authors, engaging experts on industry-related topics, and exploring medical subjects that affect our daily lives. And now, your host, Dr. E.F. Rain. Welcome to our podcast, Decoding Healthcare Research. I'm your host, Efrain Riveros, Dr. E.F. Rain. I'm an associate professor of anesthesiology at the Medical College of Georgia. Today, we are going to be talking about exercise, diet, weight regain, all these interesting topics. And for that reason, we have a very special guest today. We have Dr. Gary Hunter. He's a professor emeritus uh, in nutrition sciences at the School of Health Professions uh, at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Welcome, uh, Dr. Hunter. Thank you. Thank you. So we are going to discuss uh, several topics and uh, we will use as a framework uh, an interesting paper that was published in 2015 uh, in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise by Dr. Hunter and his team. The title of the paper is Exercise Training and Energy Expenditure Following Weight Loss. So I guess uh, my first question uh, for you, Dr. Hunter, is uh, tell us a little bit about um, your line of research. Well, it's quite varied. Um, I wouldn't recommend it for uh, somebody just starting off. You probably need to be more focused than I have been. Uh, But a great deal of it has focused on metabolic factors that predispose individuals to weight gain. That's um, that's primarily what you're interested in, I think, from what, um, you know, what, what my background is. So um, we started off um, with um, a study done, oh gosh, back in the 80s, in which we were trying to uh, determine whether or not weight loss actually had any effect on blood pressure, resting blood pressure. And uh, we found that it did have a small amount of, um, of effect on resting blood pressure. Um, that, that led us to um, some studies that were designed to identify metabolic factors that, uh, that, led, that lead to obesity. And uh, so, we did a number of different studies over a number of different years, um, each one leading, uh, each study leading to another study. And um, so I guess that gives you a little bit of background. Uh, we we t- attempted, uh, I'll just say a, a couple more things. We attempted to evaluate metabolic uh, factors in every way you possibly could. And I think we did a pretty good job uh, considering the the time period we were doing it, and uh, we we were able to look at whole body um, at the uh, and all the way down to the tissue level. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting to to see. A, you know, you have been doing this for a long time, and um, and especially nowadays, there is more more consciousness about the importance of uh, weight loss and all the benefits. And uh, I have seen that um, most of the studies and in, and even what people in general talk uh, on the street is related to diets and to exercise. And, um, and it's very interesting to see and actually very intriguing 
uh, to see how you have uh, approached uh, these uh, effects of weight loss and maintenance of that uh, weight that you lost, uh, you focus on the, um, on the energy expenditure and the, the different components of the energy expenditure, uh, taking into account uh, what, you, uh, what you use in terms of energy when you are at rest, what you use in exercise. Can you tell us a little bit more about the different components of this total energy expenditure? Well, resting energy expenditure or basal energy expenditure, um, which are very similar but not exactly the same. Uh, in the lab, it's very difficult to do a true basal. Um, anyway, resting energy expenditure accounts for the, the largest proportion of energy that people expend. Uh, for most people, it's 60 to 70 percent of the energy that they do expend. Activity-related energy expenditure, however, is uh, a much um, potentially a much larger one, and it um, it's the most varied. Um, for two individuals the same age and the same body weight, you might expect 100 kilocalories a day, maybe 150 kilocalories a day difference between them. But of course, for activity-related re energy expenditure, depending on how active people are, they you know you could have a thousand kilocalories difference. So the potential for affecting weight maintenance is much greater, I think, with um, activity-related energy expenditure. In fact, in our work. Um, we've never been able to find that resting energy expenditure really has much of an effect on weight maintenance, where activity-related energy expenditure does. Um, I, I'm not, we're not exactly sure why that would be the case. One, of the, one possibility is that our drive to eat might be more finely attuned to differences in resting energy expenditure than energy expenditure that comes from physical activity. And there's some indirect evidence to indicate that might be the case. But anyway, no, nevertheless, resting energy expenditure normally does not have a big impact on weight maintenance. I see. And and, and you mentioned that the for the for two individuals like uh having a similar level of activity, they, they, the energy expenditure may not be equal. So is there a way to standardize the, the expenditure so that you can compare individuals and even communities or groups? Well, one, I mean, we can look at activity or some kind of standardized activity and determine what their energy expenditure is with that activity. And, and, that would uh, and we do that commonly um, the activity we've used a lot of different activities walking on the flat is probably uh, at, a, at a moderate speed is probably the best but we've looked at walking we've looked at stair climbing we've walked looked at walking up a grade we've looked at biking at 50 watts uh, we also have looked at a carrying task where they would carry a box of uh, something similar to a box of groceries or a child. And uh, we look at how much energy they burn 
And so then we can compare that between individuals. And there's about a 15% variability between different individuals of the same size for that particular measure. To get a, a true economy measure, you have to subtract resting energy expenditure since resting energy expenditure occurs all the time anyway. So if you actually want to find out how much energy is used in doing the task, such as walking at three miles per hour, then you have to subtract the resting from that. And you can just do that with oxygen uptake, since we can calculate energy expenditure from oxygen uptake. I see. And uh, one, one thing that I found interesting is that uh, when it comes to activity energy expenditure, there is a part or a component of that one that you mentioned that is uh, called NEAT, that is uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And you consider that an essential part and you're actually related to, to maintenance of the weight loss that you achieved, say, with diet. Can you elaborate a little bit more? You need... Um... I mean, if you do exercise training, of course, you burn energy. Uh, but that's something that's planned. And so if you want to get an idea of what's happening in your free living, then you need to subtract that from the activity-related energy expenditure. And activity-related energy expenditure is nothing more than um, total energy expenditure minus the resting minus thermogenesis of food. So, um, so now, but anyway, neat, uh, you subtract the exercise training energy expenditure. So you have to measure the, the training exercise. So for example, if you went, went out and ran three miles today, which would be a good idea. I mean, it'd be good, good for you probably. Um, and we found that you burned 300 calories during that time period we would subtract that 300 from the total activity-related energy expenditure. And so that uh, that would give you NEAT. And so one of the things that we found over and over again in several different studies is that economy in doing common tasks like walking um, that's related to need. Now that, that really goes against what most people think would happen. You can say, well, geez, you mean you, I went out and walked a mile and if I only burned 70 calories and you burned 100, um, wouldn't I have a higher activity-related energy expenditure? Well, I think what is happening is because it's easier, because you're burning less energy, it's easier for you and so because it's easier for you, then you have a tendency to do more. And so instead of walking a mile, you might walk a mile and a half, and then you would burn more energy um, during that. You might take stairs. Um, so it comes down to ease of doing physical activity. If it's easy for you, then people are more apt to be physically active, more or more physically active, I mean. And our data, in, oh, I think probably three or four different studies have shown that. Now, one of the things you have to be careful about is when you're reading papers on physical activity, 
how the physical activity was actually measured. And in all of our studies, we use doubly labeled water to measure total energy expenditure. And then we can subtract the resting energy expenditure in a thermogenesis of food and get the activity-related energy expenditure. There's a lot of studies that are done for the simple reason it's so much cheaper is just with accelerometers or some other monitor. And those do have some problems. And so I think they're, they have some, can have some value, but there are some potential problems with accelerometry or other methods of estimating energy expenditure. And of course, if you're just using activity questionnaires, then there's some major problems. They are not very accurate. And that brings us to, to the methods. But before we, we dig deeper into the methods part of your study, because for our audience, some of the methods, are they are not familiar with them. So we will discuss a little bit about that. But before we go there, and I think it was important to clarify the different terminology that we have here with the uh, total energy expenditure, activity-related uh, expenditure and need. So having that in mind, uh, what was the primary purpose of your study, of this particular study? What, were, what was your hypothesis? Our, our first study in which we were looking at metabolic factors that predicted weight gain, um, we couldn't find any except for physical activity. So that led to the idea, well, maybe we ought to do an exercise training study to see if that has any impact. So our overall hypothesis was that the physical activity was going to help to maintain activity or total energy expenditure during weight loss and then that would have an effect on weight maintenance in, in the following year. So that was our overriding hypothesis. Um, as I indicated, we measured metabolic or energy expenditure in every way we possibly could. The analysis uh, for the paper that you're talking about was, was really a secondary analysis. And uh, when we had the data there, it's just, and we sort of thought that that would be, that would work out, but we didn't know if it would. And so the hypothesis for this paper was that um, exercise training would have a uh, positive impact on energy expenditure after weight loss. And that we had previously found that uh, walking economy was related to art um, activity related energy expenditure and so we wanted to also test that and so that's that was what the hypotheses were for this particular paper i see and i see that the participants were were women premenopausal women and you basically allocated them to to three groups right but in, yes. in all of them they had lost weight before you guys started your study uh, and um well, no no but, they had not lost weight Ah, they had not lost weight. Evaluated them at baseline with everything. Mm -hmm. Then they 
went on an 800, very low calorie diet, 800 calories a day. And we had three, all, all three groups were in 800 calories. Um, and group one was uh, aerobic trainers. They trained three days a week. Uh, group two was um, resistance trainers. They trained three days a week. And group three did not do any exercise training. Then they continued the, you know, to lose weight until they got be, below a BMI of 25. So everyone lost similar amounts of weight, you know, fairly similar amounts. They just had to stay in the study until they got there, or we washed them out because they weren't losing. Uh, and then we put them in energy balance for four weeks. We thought that, and we still think that's very, very important because if your individual has been in energy imbalance for a while, it takes them a while for their metabolism to reestablish a new norm. And so four weeks we found is enough time. And so they would have, they would be in energy balance for four weeks. And then we evaluated post. But what did you measure? Well, for the for this particular study, we measured total energy expenditure using double label water. With double label water, uh, the oxygen is uh, labeled O18, and the um, hydrogen is labeled uh, it's deuterium. Um, and uh, then you look at the washout of the two. You lose water, of course, uh, during that, but it's a two-week time period you use to to measure it. And but did you measure it in urine or? Yeah, yeah, we, we collected urines. And uh, so with the hydrogen, you wash the deuterium out uh, with when you lose water. And of course, with the, uh, the O18, that's washed out uh, when you have metabolism, it's the end product of metabolism, and in water. And so since we know how much water is being washed out, how much um, we can then calculate energy expenditure. It's, it's considered to be the gold standard for uh, free living energy expenditure. Um, we measured energy expenditure during um, five different tasks, walking in a flat at three miles per hour, walking up a grade at three miles three and a half or three miles per hour, walking up a um, stairs um, for four minutes, um, carrying a box of groceries and riding a bicycle at 50 watts. And so we averaged the energy expenditure for those tasks, subtracted the resting energy expenditure from that. So now we have the energy, average energy expenditure of those four, five tasks. And so we could then, that gives you a, a, an economy measure. Um, we calculated activity related energy expenditure by subtracting uh, resting energy expenditure, as well as the thermogenesis of food. 
So for example, if an individual had a total energy expenditure of 2,000 calories and their resting energy expenditure was um, 1,100 calories and their thermogenesis of food was 300 calories, then that means then that would be 1,400. So 14 from 2,000 and 600. So activity rate energy expenditure would be uh, 6,000 or 600, excuse me, 600. Mm -hmm. calories per day. Activity-related energy expenditure is going to be affected by how much activity you actually are doing as well as how economically you do it. So for if you have two individuals that walk a mile and one's burning 100 calories a minute or 100 calories for the mile and the other's burning 70 calories, then that person that walked that mile that had the 100 is going to be, had burned 30 calories more. So that means that activity rate energy expenditure isn't exactly the same thing as the amount of physical activity. You have to take into consideration how economically individuals can do the task. And so we have an, um, with the, five tasks that we did, we have an average economy measure. So we simply divide that into activity rate energy expenditure. And then that gives us minutes per day of physical activity. If we assume everyone is doing those standardized tasks. And we know that's not exactly the case. However, they're probably pretty close to the average, and um, that that gives us at least a, a um, idea of the quantity of physical activity that is actually taking place. And we call that art. Neat is the activity-related energy expenditure minus any planned exercise training. So going back to your uh, example where you're running three miles and burning 100 calories each mile, that'd be 300 calories. So if your total energy, your activity-related energy expenditure was 300, and your, I'm sorry, if your total uh, activity-related energy, energy expenditure was 600, and your running energy expenditure was 300, your NEAT would then be 600 minus 300 or 300. So it's just taking out the energy expenditure from the training. So, and, and that's sort of important if you have, if you're trying to compare groups, especially because um, if, if our aerobic trainers were burning 300 calories a, a workout. They weren't working out seven days a week, but um, so we had to subtract that from the activity rate energy expenditure. And the same thing with the resistance trainers. We measured their energy expenditure as well. And so, that, so NEAT tells you what you're doing in non-planned exercise. Non-planned exercise. So, and uh, in terms of the results, because I, I am interested particularly in the comparison between resistance training and aerobic training, 
what, what did you find when you compare those two groups? Well, the resistance training was able to increase um, walking economy on the flat. Um, neither the weight loss with no training or the aerobic training um, affected it. So, um, and so because of that, at least we think it's because of that, neither increased with the resistance training. Um, now you might be wondering why the economy improved with the resistance training. We think it's because of the increase in strength. And we've done a lot of study um, on that. And it's probably a multi-factor thing. Um, you may or may not be aware, but fast, uh, your, your readers are probably uh, understand about fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fiber. And um, they may not know, though, that fast twitch muscle fiber are, are inefficient. Uh, slow twitch muscle fiber is more efficient. Um, calcium pump seems to be different. Um, sodium potassium pump probably is also different as far as energy expenditure and those things. So if you have a stronger muscle, then you will be less dependent on fast twitch muscle fiber because you know the slow twitch are activated first for low level intensity things. Fast twitch are normally only activated if you really need them. Of course, if you've strengthened your muscles, now you'll need your fast twitch muscles less when you're say walking at three miles per hour. So that might be one reason. Another one, and it might even be a more important one, is with if you have a stronger muscle, you may be able to get more of something for nothing. Now, that might sound strange. There's not many things in this world where you actually get something for nothing. But I'm going to introduce a term I hope people will be able to understand. It's stretch shortening cycle potentiation stretch shortening cycle potentiation if you stretch a muscle tendon complex very rapidly just prior to a concentric contraction then you end up getting more force you get more force for two reasons one the myotatic stretch reflex, you end up contracting the muscle a little harder because you've activated those receptors. But the bigger part is probably you, when you did the high stretch just before the contraction, you have stretched the elastic components of the tendon in the muscle. So this allows the elastic energy to be used during the concentric contraction. So that doesn't cost any energy. Um, 
So if you can enhance the stretch shortening cycle potentiation, then you end up getting more stretch and more energy into the muscle for not using any energy. So it's way more efficient. Yes, and so it makes it more efficient, yes. We've shown over and over again the stretch shortening cycle potentiation is related to uh, walking economy, running economy. Um, others have shown jumping economy. Um, so, yes. And uh, so if you have a stronger muscle, then you will subconsciously develop a strategy for when, say, if you're on the downside, you're, as your foot lands in the walking phase, you have to put the brakes on to keep from falling down. Okay, But if you delay putting the brakes on to the last few milliseconds, then you end up stretching the tendon and the elastic components of the muscle more. So then you have more elastic stretch, and so you got more push off. And so the stronger muscle allows the individual to develop more stretch shortening cycle potentiation. We're pretty sure that's probably the case. But whatever the case may be, um, resistance training improves walking economy. And walking economy seems to have an effect on meat. I see. And going back to need, uh, would it be safe to say, because definitely when you weigh, when you lose weight, say after a diet, your need tends to drop, right? So the, the resistance training would be like, um, would be counteracting that effect yes. to, to try to maintain the need yes. higher so that the weight loss can be maintained over time. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And that's actually a big impact because the, um, uh, it supports the the notion that uh, exercise has to be part of the equation when you come when yep. you think about weight loss, right? Yes, we um, as another paper that we did from this particular study, we looked at what happens one year following the weight loss, and we found that both the resistance training and um, the aerobic training reduced the weight regain. Um, it didn't, didn't totally stop it. Uh, I think the aerobic trainers gained about three and a half kilograms. They lost 12, uh, the average loss was 12 kilograms for all the ladies in the study. Um, the aerobic trainers gained about three and a half kilograms. The uh, resistance trainers about four. The individuals that didn't do any exercise training, they gained back about nine kilograms, um, which we expected. That's uh, That normally is what happens following weight loss. So the exercise training not only did it affect the need, but and activity and activity rate energy expenditure, but it also affected um, subsequent weight gain. 
one year. Um, what was what we found was even more remarkable. I don't. I, I, are your readers going to be? No, they're no. They're going to know about visceral fat versus yeah, yeah leg fat and arm fat. We, of course, with the weight loss, all three groups lost quite large amounts of visceral fat. After the weight loss, or after, you know, one year after the weight loss, though, the um, no exercise group regained approximately, I don't know, a little over half, maybe two-thirds of their visceral fat that they lost. Whereas the two exercise groups didn't gain any at all. Even though they did gain back a little bit of weight. So, so this is another thing that probably would be important for people to understand is that not only is exercise training help to keep you a little leaner, but it's going to also help you to keep leaner where it really counts in the viscera. There's, and there's many studies that have shown that exercise training um, reduces visceral fat more or relatively more than in the legs and arms. So it's, it's I think the, the act of training somehow moves the fat from the viscera towards the periphery arms and legs, which I suppose that might be people, uh, women don't want to have fat legs, but it'd be better to have fat legs than a, than a lot of visceral fat. Than visceral fat, yeah, exactly. And um, I guess my next question is, uh, because all this is exciting, uh, what's the future in terms of research now that everything is moving in that direction well something that we've been studying it's it's my one of my colleagues katia martins um we've been studying quite strongly is um concept of metabolic adaptation a metabolic adaptation uh, simply is that after or during or and or after weight loss, energy expenditure might be going down disproportionately more than your body weight. So, and so there's no doubt that occurs during energy imbalance. So while you're dieting, your energy expenditure is going to go down. Um, and it's going to go down for two reasons. It's going to go down because you're becoming a smaller person, but also it's going to be going down um, because of this metabolic adaptation. And so one of the things we found is that with metabolic adaptation, that seems to be related to the amount of fat-free mass that is lost during weight loss. So 
you understand if you're on a diet, any kind of a diet, it's going to be almost impossible to um, not lose fat-free mass. Probably a lot of muscle, but it could be some organ mass. Um, well, what we found is that subsequent weight regain, and we've seen this in several different studies, is related to the amount of metabolic adaptation that occurs. And of course, if you're trying to maintain body weight after weight loss, it'd be really nice not to have metabolic adaptation um, and make it easier to maintain weight. So one of the things that we're interested in and we're trying to get some money to study it is to um, Number one to find out is, is it muscle mass or is it organ mass? Now the muscle mass, um, you know, muscle mass increases resting energy expenditure. Um, and it also has an effect on free living energy expenditure, activity rate energy expenditure. Neat. Um, Organ mass might have a bigger impact on resting energy expenditure. I don't know that it's going to have much of an effect on activity-related energy expenditure or need. But anyway, we're we're interested in exploring that. So that's that's awesome, and it's exciting how the the complexity of uh, the metabolic pathways and everything that is happening when you think about weight loss requires like a multifaceted approach, definitely. So just dieting per se, obviously you are going to lose weight, but as you say, there are many things happening behind the scenes. And uh, all these research that uh, groups like yours are, are, are doing are going to el elucidate the mechanisms. And uh, we are looking forward to to seeing the results of of those new studies. And uh, we are very we are following very closely your your group. And uh, I'm sure you guys are going to come with breakthrough findings. And this way uh, we are coming to an end uh, of this uh, interview. First of all, I want to thank you for uh, sharing your knowledge with us. And I'm sure that our audience is going to enjoy uh, this discussion. So for our audience, don't forget to give us your feedback about this podcast and if you have any questions. Uh, and uh, uh, you will find in the description the links to the paper that we just mentioned and uh, some other papers um, of the same uh, group. Uh, and uh, see you uh, next time. Thank you, doctor. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to give us a thumbs up and share it with your friends and family. Make sure to subscribe to our channel and hit that notification bell so you never miss an episode. If you have any questions or thoughts about today's topic, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave your comments down below. For more information and references related to today's discussion, you can find them in the video description below. We appreciate your support and look forward to having you back for our next episode.